This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are going to uh, really just camp out this morning. While you're turning there, let me just tell you a little bit of, of, of my background. So I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. Very shortly, I, I'm talking weeks, maybe days even after that, I had this sense that I was going to work in full-time vocational ministry. And so really shortly after becoming a Christian, I at least kind of got that part of later in my life right. What I got really wrong was sort of the specifics around that. I was uh, thinking at that time that I was going to do something other than be a part of the church. And let me just preface this by saying this. Uh, I am... Uh, really high, when you do a Myers-Briggs assessment, I'm really high on the judging side of things, uh, which means I form opinions very quickly. And uh, the last thing that you should know about that is, is God has a profound sense of humor that usually comes out in irony when it comes to what you think your future's going to be like. And so I had a sense that I was gonna work in ministry and, and I was excited about that, but I didn't want that to be in the church. I did not want to do church ministry when I was younger. So here's, so 17 through 23 year old me thought this, churches are boring, churches are bureaucratic, and if you really want to see God do big things, church is not the place for that. You gotta go someplace else. So I was planning on something overseas, I was planning on, on something parachurch, and I got all the way through college. I got into seminary thinking that same thing. And then there was one night, I want to say my, my second semester of seminary, I was saying something about the church, probably kind of arrogant, probably kind of naive, and uh, that's, a good, that's a terrible combination. Arrogance and naivete are a terrible combination. And, and, and a good friend of mine who was part of that conversation just looked at me and said, you know, the way that you're talking about the church isn't how Jesus talks about the church. And if you really love Jesus, and I think you really do, then you need to learn, you need to see, you need to discover how he thinks about the church, and you need to start thinking about the church the way he does. And that rebuke, which is absolutely what it was, just gutted me because I knew instantly that he was right. I felt so convicted that everything that I thought about my future, everything that I was thinking and planning was built on this really faulty assumption and, and that needed to change like the next day. And so what I remember doing is I got in my car and I drove home, which is like 15, 20 minute drive. And by the time I got home, I knew that I would wake up tomorrow morning, I would go to the seminary, I would walk into the registrar's office, I would change my degree to focus on pastoral studies, and I would spend the rest of my life serving the church. It was that abrupt for me. 
and next to my immediate family, this matters more to me than anything else in the world. God did such a profound work in my heart and in my mind that day that it it changed the rest of my life. And the reason I tell you that is because we we spent the last three weeks asking and and, then sort of answering questions about about what what the church is and, and why particularly we come to worship as a church. And originally, my plan was to, to take this last time that we have together in this series and, and talk about how this hour in here sets us up for the rest of our hours of worship out there. But I, as I was preparing a few other things, uh, some of those memories just came flooding back, and, and I started putting all of what I was thinking should come next. And I, and I was kind of thinking and hearing about how some people have been talking about the church and culture and in media and sort of our wider world lately. And I began to think it would be good for us to take this week, not to talk and learn about how to do more, but just to spend about a half hour, 35 minutes marveling at the beauty that is the church. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, There won't be much advice this morning. This won't be super practical. Not going to have any lists. Uh, This is just going to be God's glory in the church. And I actually think that's better. Because lists provide a few things that you might do, but they're not very good motivators. But if, if you teach somebody to just gaze at the beauty and see the glory of something in themselves, they'll just give themselves to that thing. And so if we just love the church, we won't have to tell you why it's important. If we see the church the way Christ does, we won't have to, say, to, to learn how to value it. That will come very instinctively to us. And so this is just, if you had to call this anything, this is just kind of a love letter from me to the church. And so what I want to do is I want to do this from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. We'll go through verse 22, and then I'm going to kind of just draw out of this five things that um, these verses say about God's glory and the beauty of the church. So let me read for us from Ephesians 2, 17 uh, and following. It says, And he, who is Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if you were here last week, uh, I told you that our elders took about 10 minutes together, what was a couple weeks ago now, and we pulled 30 
things, 30 great truths about the church from these verses. I just want to take five. I really felt the, fought the urge to preach a 30-point sermon. I kind of wanted to do just like one minute on each of those, but I, I figured it would be better if I just did five of them. So the first verse we read, 17, says that, that he, Jesus, came and preached peace to people who were far off and people and peace to people who were near. So let's, let's notice a couple of things about that. So the original context that this is written into, when people are said to be far off or near, is that means that he's talking to people who were near being from the Jewish nation, meaning nearer to the promises of God, more familiar with them from childhood, having a greater lineage and history in knowing the promises of God, And then those who are far off would be Gentiles or people who were born outside of the covenant community of God and therefore their family background, probably their previous religious history has nothing to do with Yahweh or the the God of scripture. And what the first verse we read says is Jesus came and preached peace to both. And that's because it doesn't matter where you are born or the family that you're born into. It doesn't even matter what your life was like prior to Christ. We all come into the church the same way. And that's through the blood of Christ. Some of us didn't come in that way and others of us came in through family or lineage or ancestry. Some of us don't come in through obedience of the rules and others by grace. We all enter the church the same way, and we all need to have peace with God made for us through Christ. Uh, It's easy to to get into a, a church group and to feel like there are some people who are closer to God than others. But that's never the case. Without Christ, no one can be close to God. And so this is the first thing I love about the church. It's made up of people who have all kinds of different pasts. And when it comes to their relationship with God, the backgrounds are as different as the number of people that there are in the room. But no matter what our past is like, we all come in the same way. The only way into the church is through the door of repentance and faith. So there's no big decorated, sort of ornate main door for the good people, the worthy people. And then there's some sort of side door that's all rusted out that that the rest of us just hope is left ajar a little bit and we can kind of wedge a foot in there and sneak in. Everybody needs peace with God through Jesus. And because of him, we can have it. And without him, There's no peace with God for anybody. No matter your background, the basic tenets of our spiritual needs are identical. We're all condemned in sin, but through faith, any of us can be united with Jesus and be free from the condemnation of sin. And the near and the far thing is so good for us to remember Because we get people 
who think they're far. We get people who think they're near. And the worst thing you can do is assume that wherever you are at, Jesus can't draw you in from there. Or he doesn't need to. If you're thinking I'm near, I know the promises, I live the life, I have the background, I'm good. I was raised in the church, said everything at the church, I've served the church, but your faith isn't in Jesus. None of that other stuff is going to give you peace with God. And you're near. That's great. I'm regularly, so it, it is great to be near. I am regularly praying for my children. I pray for your children that they would be people who would feel and be for their whole lives near to God. That's a really good thing. But it's not going to save them. Only Jesus can do that. So you're near, good. But let's not let your nearness be a cover for a lack of faith. And if you think you're far, so far that that you're not even sure if you could come in the first place, know that through him, we can all have access through the Spirit to the Father. Whether you are near or whether you are far, the church is the place that you belong if you've trusted Jesus for peace with God. Second reason the church is beautiful is because God has made it a home for Christians. When you're in Christ, you're no longer, says right here, a stranger or an alien. With Christians throughout millennia, you are part of the household of God. So let's just ask this. Who lives together in households? Families. When you're in Christ, you're united to him in a death like his, in a resurrection like his, and you're also united to his household. You are part of his family. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ because every Christian has been adopted by God and in the church we're given a spiritual family. And so some of us did grow up in Christian homes. Some of us now have Christian families and praise God for that, that's a really good thing. It's grace. But there is not a person here who needs to feel like they are alone in their faith or they have no one else to call family because this place is full of family if you are in Christ. This is a bigger family than you probably ever thought you would be able to have. And so if you invest here, if you allow yourself to to be here and to be known and you put in the work to knowing others, you will be among a big joyful family, and God will use that to bless your life. And and, and listen, the, the analogy holds pretty well the other way as well. Nobody loves you like family. But sometimes, no one's harder to love than family. Amen a little bit on that? Family's hard sometimes. So to save for family doesn't mean we're always going to get along. But what it does mean is we're committed to one another. 
We're bound to one another. And that, that commitment runs deep. It's so deep that we don't bolt when we have misunderstandings. We figure it out. When you don't, when you don't agree with your family, you don't just go get another family. You, you work on it. You talk. But you do it in a way that lets, others, that lets others in your family know that you're committed. So listen, you, you would never get together with your family on Thanksgiving and have a disagreement and just go, you know what, it's too hard. I'm going to go across the street and I'm going to become a member of the Thompsons. And you would just never walk into their house, sit down and go, I'm a member of this family now. I, it was too hard over there. That's not what you do. When you're a part of family, even when it's tough, you work it out. And the church is a spiritual family for Christians. Verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But Christ himself is the cornerstone. So th- this is the first of two building analogies here. It can kind of seem self-serving for Paul, who, who was an apostle, to write this letter and say that apostles are part of the foundation of the church. But it's actually not at, at all self-serving when you consider what he's saying about apostles by asking what apostles did. Apostles and prophets are only faithfully carrying out their work when they're proclaiming the word of God. So uh, apostles are a group of men that especially occupy a very unique place in the history of the church because to some degree they were entrusted with the care and the expansion of the early church in a way that nobody else ever was in history or ever will be again. Now, everything they did falls under the headship of Christ, but apostles were very unique. They were unique, and and they found the headship of Christ in two primary ways. First, uh, apostles were only apostles because Jesus personally appointed them. So there's only one way to become an apostle. Jesus needs to call you directly himself. Uh, We don't have apostles anymore. Jesus gave them to the church for this single generation to begin the movement. And so what happens is is just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gathers his remaining 11 disciples and tells them, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. And so he sends them out to preach the gospel. They need a 12th to replace Judas who betrayed Jesus. So very early in Acts, they they choose Matthias and he uh, becomes a 12th apostle. And then uh, shortly after that, Jesus calls Saul, who was a persecutor of Christians, and basically says, it's not gonna be easy, but I'm gonna change your name to Paul and I'm gonna make you an apostle. So what they do is they begin to spread out. Most of them go in different directions from Jerusalem And they begin preaching the good news of Jesus, spreading the word of God. The New Testament is primarily written by apostles. The books that were not written by apostles are all written by close associates of the apostles. So they begin to be a conduit for the word of God spread around the world, written down to be held and obeyed and taught by the church. And so apostles 
are only in, 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 in prophets who are also uh, today continuing to delay today to give us the word of God. Only true so far as they are doing what God commands and preaching the true word of God. So that's how the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, because they spread, write, deliver, preach the word of God. But in all of it, see here, Jesus remains the cornerstone. So this is the third thing that's beautiful about the church. Jesus is our cornerstone. We're not built on men, and we're not ground bound to a certain location. Uh, the life we have and the life we share together, that's built on him. In, in Matthew 16, Jesus says that where his name is confessed, he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will stand against it. And that, that sounds mighty and powerful. It sounds like kind of a battle cry. And Jesus is a warrior. But Jesus isn't the kind of warrior that we're used to seeing in the world because he leads and brings a kind of kingdom that's very different from kingdoms of this place and of this time. For one thing, Jesus doesn't take and inaugurate his kingdom by force. His victory comes through obedience unto death. Jesus forgives people who hurt him. And when we talk about being a church built with Christ as our cornerstone, we're built the same way. So cornerstones are, are what starts the building, what the rest of the building is built around. They set the tone for the whole structure. We're built on a servant shepherd who died. He may not look a lot like the kind of building block that the world is looking for. But again, that's because the kingdom that he's building is not of this world. So think of a church like an embassy placed in a foreign land. It's in the foreign land, but it's representing its home nation. So the church is like an embassy in this world. We're here to be here. We're here to live here. We're here to establish relations with this world. But quite often, we're not going to fit in because we're from some place. Our home is someplace very different from this place, and we're built differently than anything, anything else in the world is going to be built. Christ is the cornerstone. That's number three. I want to grab the last two primarily from verse 22. In him you also are being put together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's number four. The church is beautiful because it's a bunch of really different people joined together. There is an element to being part, having membership in a church that's kind of an advanced citizenship. Because it's not always comfortable and it's not always easy. Coming together with other believers who you might not have a lot in common with when it comes to worldly things can really be a challenge. And this is why the beauty 
and the glory of God's design in the church is marvelous because what we actually see is even in the challenges, even in the difficulties of membership in the church, that becomes, under the sovereignty of God, a really good thing. This verse right here, it says that we're built together. The previous verse says we're joined together. So there's a double meaning in being built together. First, we're bound together. And it's actually in that binding that we're meant to be built up. Nothing will promote your growth in Christ like the local church. Here you will find Christians who will bless and serve you and care for you, and you will find Christians who will irritate you and drive you nuts sometimes. And you need both to be built up in Christ. Uh, every, every once in a while, I have someone come to me frustrated by somebody else in the church who isn't acting the way that, that this person thinks they ought to act. And my response is usually to say, let's praise God for that. Because it gives us a really great opportunity. If you think that you are a mature Christian who understands how other Christians ought to act, then when you find Christians not acting the way you want, praise be to God because that's a situation tailor-made for you to model the mature Christian virtues and characteristics of patience and kindness and for you to have opportunities to gently and humbly correct. It's an opportunity for you to look for the log in your own eye where you are finding the speck in your brother or sister's. And it's a chance for you to realize that what you are perceiving as a challenge in somebody else is probably at some point the way somebody has perceived you to be a challenge. So if you think you're a mature believer, churches are great places to test out that maturity because you'll find some other people, often yourself, who aren't quite as mature as we'd all want them to be. On the opposite side, if you don't think you're a very mature believer, if you think, I, I feel a little bit out of place here, I don't feel like I know as much, I don't feel like I have a background, I feel like I'm not as gifted, this is the perfect place for you to be. There are men and women here who have been following Christ for decades, and you can learn from them. Find a good one or two. Ask them to meet with you. If you find the right ones, mostly what they will share with you are stories of their failures and stories of their weaknesses and shortcomings. And if you are wise, you will hear those stories, take them to heart, recognize that you too have failures and shortcomings, but learn from theirs and look for ways to use yours to teach others as well. The church should always constantly... Here, think about it this way. Churches are not going to be healthy if they lack both either mature believers or immature believers. We need a constant cycling of mature believers who are discipling and growing up immature believers and immature believers who are being grown up into Christ and new people coming into the church to become the new immature believers. If we're just a bunch of mature believers... It's a really sad testimony for the work of God in the world because mature believers 
draw in and celebrate and welcome in non-believers and immature believers, and they all grow them up. There should be a constant churn of this in our church. It's healthy to have a wide mix and a wide variety. And the last truth I want to draw to these verses for today is where these verses close. The church is a dwelling place for God. And by that, we do not mean that God lives here. I love this building. I have a lot of great memories in this building. It's a, it's a precious place to me. But we're just sitting in a building. This is not the dwelling place of God. We together are where God dwells in power and glory in this world. I've been saying for four weeks now that, that there's nothing in all the world like the church of Jesus Christ. When we come together, wherever we were, inside, summer of 2020 in the parking lot, sometimes we go to park in our community, when we're together, that's when we're the church. This address is simply the place that our church knows to gather and by God's grace has been given as a functional space in which and from which we are able to be the church. But folks, if this building were reduced to rubble this next week, we would be no less the church if we had to meet someplace else next Sunday morning. Acts 20.28 says that Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. He did not purchase buildings. He purchases dead souls and gives them new life. But the reason that we can say that God dwells in us is because his spirit inhabits believers. So how does God dwell in his people? He comes and he inhabits us. God has never lived in temples. He's always lived among his people. Where his people are, where his people gather, there he is. And if that's the case, then every, every person should love the church. And, and, and to borrow a, a phrase from Charles Spurgeon, we should all give ourselves to the church. I want you to listen to what, the, what, what Spurgeon said about the Christian in the church, a Christian life in the church. So he preached this message called the Good Deposit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London on April 5th, 1891. If you realize the date, that'll be 131 years ago on Tuesday. And he says this quote. It's a long quote, but I'm going to read the whole thing because it's really good. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I, that's him speaking, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it. 
for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it's right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it, if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are sinners still and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Here's what I love about this. Spurgeon's appeal to love the church and join the church does not just acknowledge that the church is imperfect. His whole appeal is built on that idea. If you're waiting for the church to be perfect or looking for one that is, you won't find it. In the middle of, the, in the middle of this, he asks, how else is there to be a church on earth? And if there's no church, how is there supposed to be a testimony for God in the world? And here's how I put that in my own words. The fact that we have come together, the fact that we covenant together, and are now being built together is evidence for not only the existence of God, but for the grace of God to the rest of the world. How else can you explain this? The very fact that we are here now together in this way this very meeting speaks to the power of God and if if you're a Christian you will want to be part of proclaiming the power and the goodness and the, the grace and the inclusiveness of God to the world and that happens nowhere more in a more focused manner than in the church there is nothing that communicates the grace of God more to the world than the church. Nothing. It's messy. Sure. Imperfect. Of course it is. It can even be difficult. But it's the dwelling place of God and it's the home of believers. I'm nervous for Christians who say they don't have a church. It's like somebody saying they're part of a family but they almost never come to the family gatherings, and when it's time to celebrate something big, they're not even quite sure where they should go. So I told you at the beginning, I don't really have any kind of a list for you of things to do, and it's true, I, I don't. But, but I do have a hope for us. I hope that we would see this place because it's, it's where we're together for what we really are. Though we are yet sinful and have many flaws, 
We are something profoundly beautiful, built by God, and by his grace, we are a testimony of him to the world. So in doing that, I hope that we would love each other in ways that are inexplainable, apart from God having worked to save and redeem us. And that's going to require sacrifice from each one of us. It's going to require forgiveness when we feel hurt and wronged. It's going to mean that we have to be patient with one another, that where we do not understand one another, we assume the best, that where we are failed by one another, we are quick to forgive, even if we're not asked to be forgiven. Let's just recognize that. You don't have to be asked for forgiveness to just give it. You can just forgive somebody even when they don't know they've wronged you. And we can do this. We can sacrifice and we can be patient and we can forgive because we are built on the cornerstone of Christ who is so exceedingly patient with us that time and time again when we choose the world and we fall to sin, he remains open and ready and willing to save. And he forgives over and over and over again when any other person would have written you off. He says, I will forgive you yet again. And don't worry, when you do the same thing tomorrow, I'm here again for your forgiveness. And he's the sacrifice we need. We can sacrifice time, a little bit of pride, a little bit of money, a little bit of whatever we're asked to because Jesus has sacrificed everything for us that we might be brought to him. He is the ultimate sacrifice. And he, through all of this, his patience, his forgiveness, and his sacrifice has saved to the uttermost. The church really is beautiful. There's nothing else like it. There'll never be anything else like it. And apart from salvation itself, okay, I will give you one thing to think when you walk out of here. Apart from salvation itself, The church is the most precious gift God will ever give you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the church. Thank you for this church. May those who have known its fellowship rejoice at the sweetness of the gift that we've been given. And may those who feel like these things have not been their experience in the church be moved in this time and in the days forward, though imperfect that we may be, though 
hurt at times that people have been by the church where it has acted wrongly. May we give ourselves to the church, either for the first time or regularly, because the church is the people that you have bought with your blood. And of course, if we are to give ourselves to you that we might live, we give ourselves to your people that we might live among. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.